Hello and welcome back to the We Are Rail Fans podcast, the show for rail fans by rail fans, where we explore all areas of the rail hobby from around the globe. I'm Sam, and thanks very much to those of you who downloaded and listened to episode one, featuring writer and broadcaster Ben Ando. Ben shared his passion for modern rail travel and his thoughts on the future of British railways, and it was a fascinating listen. If you missed it, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the series so you never miss an episode. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we last spoke, so much so that Thomas has posted on the We Are Rail Fans Facebook page, What Happened to the Podcast? Well, Thomas, never fear. We've been busy working on some great guests for this series, and I know you're going to love the interview you're about to hear on this episode. Because today, I'm joined by Ian McTeague. Ian is an HST, or high-speed train driver, with Great Western Railways. Welcome to the We Are Rail Fans podcast. Thank you very much, um, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, as you've just said, yes, I have, uh, I've worked on the high-speed trains for the best part of about 35 years. Um, at the moment, because Great Western have withdrawn the... Uh, the full-size HSTs, the 2 plus 8s, uh, we're now down to what we call the short-formed HSTs, which are the Class 255, or commonly known as the uh, the Castle sets. Um, and also, I am predominantly now driving the Class 800, which is the bio-mode train, which operates on electric and diesel power between London, Paddington, Bristol, the South West, and also South Wales. Amazing stuff. So how did you get started? Did you always aspire to be a train driver? Um, actually, yes. My father was in the RAF and he actually wanted me to join the services and it's not something I sort of explored. Contrary to what a lot of people think, a lot of people think it was steam engines, uh, some of the early diesels that uh, that get people interested in the railway. Actually, I went the complete opposite way. I actually got interested in the railways with the uh, the third rail electrics over on the southern region, as it used to be called. Many a miles spent traveling with, with my grandmother, um, that iconic sound, the typical clackety-clack of the, of the rolling stock, all now gone because of continuously welded rail. But I made up my mind from a very young age that's what I wanted to do. School, I would say, were not particularly helpful. Um, they regarded me as a bit of a dreamer, to be honest. So I left school. I went on to the Youth Opportunity Scheme with the government. Um, I was with British Rail for about 12 months or so. They offered me a job of which uh, I, I duly accepted, and I became an HST shunter over St. Philip's Marsh. And believe it or not, on um, Friday the 13th, I applied to Bristol Bathrow Diesel Depot as a traction trainee, where I was, whereupon I was accepted. And 37 and a half years later, here we are. So we do get quite a few people listening to the podcast who have aspirations of their own to become a driver. Mm-hmm. How does that process work? What's the, the, the selection and training actually entail these days? Um, at the moment, I mean, with regards to, you know, joining a, a particular TOC, your, your best bet generally is to approach them on their recruiting site 
Um, it does actually depend on vacancies. Um, there are various aptitude tests that an individual will have to sit. Not everybody is, ex uh, is successful on the first time round. So, you know, my, my advice is, you know, work hard. If you have a little bit of knowledge with regards to railway operations, depending on the side you want to go in. So, for example, if you want to become a driver, if you've got a little bit of uh, extra knowledge and there's plenty of reference out there to do that, to have a, a basic knowledge of, of operations on the railway, to show enthusiasm. And as I say, it's all about being, although we're train drivers, we're actually part of a team. So, you know, this is, this is, this is what a lot of TOCs want to hear. So the simple fact is, you know, you may not get through the first time, but, you know, as, as, as I would normally say, keep the faith, you know, keep going, keep applying. And at the end of the day, you know, you will get there. You get to rocket along at uh, up to 125 miles an hour. How does the rail network look at that speed? Is it is is it frightening? Is it terrifying? Well, I mean, you've been doing it long enough. You're probably over it by now. But but how does that compare? The reaction time is quite a bit different to what you're seeing. Um, if you think at 125 miles per hour, you're actually doing two miles a minute. So right. you're covering a mile in 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 28 seconds. So, you know, your your reaction time, your thinking time, you've you've got to be on par with with everything that's happening around you. So there is this really strange misconception. A lot of people think, oh, it's only just pulling a couple of levers. But actually, when you're you're actually up in the front of an HST, class eight hundred, not only have you got the responsibility of the folk behind you, but you you have the responsibility to doing your job safely comfortably for everybody else there's no good sort of landing into a station and everybody's up in the front with you because you've braked so hard at the last minute right. so yeah with regards to speeding along at 125 miles an hour you you are focused all the time i'll be honest i i i do get a bit of a buzz out of it you know 125 mile an hour under under green signals is a fantastic feeling you know it's the sun's out you're, you're sat there in the cab of a train you know you're zipping along cruising at 125 mile an hour in that situation it's fantastic um however we do have the more challenging aspects of our job when the weather's not so good so when it's raining it could be drizzle the tracks could be a little bit greasy you've potential for fog you know, and to be honest, um, there is a misconception that, uh, you know, we we drive to to basically we drive to time. Actually, we drive to time as conditions allow. So the first and foremost priority is safety at all times. And that's safety of yourself, safety of the people on board, and most importantly, safety of the guys who are actually out on what we call the P-way or permanent way. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to take into consideration. There's a lot for us to focus on. Just to give you an example, from the time you actually see track workers on the line to the time you get to them is approximately seven seconds. Right. It's not long, believe me, at 125, it's not long at all. So, um, you know, you really have got to be on, on your game. It's a case of, you know, you've, you've got to be concentrating the whole time. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, is that the level of concentration required mm -hmm. must be significant. How draining is it to do a, uh, a typical kind of full-length run? This comes with experience. Um, you know, I can remember my first few trips out on the on the legendary uh, Intercity One Two Five, and i i had a I had a real, real big buzz with this. 
But for the first six months, you're constantly on edge. You know, it's you are concentrating 110%. And then I think as your experience starts to kick in, we can almost, uh, it, a, a way of lightening it, if you like, is this. When you drive your car, for the first time when you actually drive your car, you're, you're, you're on tune with everything. So you're thinking about everything that's around you. You're thinking about pedestrians. You're thinking about the road conditions. You're thinking about everything. And what that can actually do, that can be, that can be as, you, as you stated, that can be very draining. Now, it gets to a point, actually, that when you are on clear signals with a train, um, train's in good condition, it's, it's working well, you've got no adverse problems, you know, you can probably sort of, what, what, what I tend to do is I go into what I call cruise mode. So my concentration level will drop back to about, probably about 90%. So although I'm watching everything, I'm filtering out certain things. So I'm not looking at everything. And then as soon as we get checked by signals, as soon as you're entering a complex station layout, anything out of the ordinary or something, you're 100%, 110%, you're concentrating the whole time. So through experience, you can actually reduce that workload just slightly. So that gives you half a chance, if if you understand what I mean by that. Yeah, no, I, no, I get you entirely. So... How do you how do you judge braking when you're moving at that speed? I mean, obviously, if you've got a, a, a routine stop coming up, you know where yeah. you need to start applying the brake. Mm-hmm. But uh, how do you how do you judge it? Again, it's down to experience. This is something that we can't teach. It's something that you learn. With the HSTs, it was actually quite simple because, believe it or not, you you actually got a feel for the train. Um, you know, the HSTs were effectively about 415 tons in, in total weight. So we had two power cars, eight coaches. Um, for us, you know, as you just quite rightly said about routine station stop, it's not always set in stone because obviously with if the track is wet, greasy, you allow a little bit more. It's the same thing when you drive your car. You know, you, you wouldn't go racing up to a red light and then put your anchors on and expect to stop if the road's greasy. You could potentially slide through. When we're actually under clear signals, if, for example, we get a signal check, you straight away, the, the initial reaction is kill the speed and bring the train down to make sure that you can safely stop in the distance you can see to be clear, a.k.a. you stop at the red signal. Now, I know in the past there's, there's been various incidences and everything about uh, this sort of a problem with trains going past red signals. The one thing is a driver never sets out to do that. Um, What can actually happen is what I call the Swiss cheese effect. And if all the holes line up, you can find yourself in in quite a bit of trouble. But as an individual, it's down to ourselves to keep our route knowledge current, our traction knowledge current. And it's also about remaining focused in the job, to be fair with you. So that the whole time, you know, you are concentrating on everything that you need to concentrate on. So with regards to your braking... It's it's down to a simple fact that as soon as you get an adverse signal, you you basically you're going into what we call a full service situation. You kill the speed of the train. You know, you don't mess about with the brake. It's a case of that red signal. You've got to stop at it. Same thing with the station. You don't mess about with the brake. It's a case of it's a nice progressive braking curve to enable you fixate on a point, say, at the end of the platform where you want to stop and you literally use the train brake itself to stop where you want to actually start. That sounds so, really complex, doesn't it? <laughs> no, I don't, actually, I was I was thinking about the Swiss cheese effect. Uh, uh-huh. What would what would be uh, an example kind of sequence of events where you go from 
uh, oh dear, into oh, hang on, and and then where where you have problems stack up one after mm-hmm. another. Uh, that, what would be an example of that? Until they actually get rid of get rid of the red squashy bit up the front, namely me. You know, at the end of the day, even with the greatest safety systems, they can actually be compromised if things go wrong. So it's a case of, you know, as a driver, you are there solely for the responsibility of driving that train safely, making sure the passengers are comfortable and obeying all the signals, rules and regulations that that actually apply to your job. So, you know, that's that's the thing. It's various incidences that have happened in the past you know, were were not done on purpose. They weren't done deliberately. It's just a case of if everything goes wrong and everything lines up at the wrong time, things can possibly go wrong. But it's something that, you know, as I say, us as drivers, we, we don't do on purpose. We don't take risks. We never have done. Um, but, you know, sometimes even the most elaborate safety systems, you know, can, can cause a problem. So it's remaining focused the whole time while you're up the front of that train. That's the one thing that, you know, is really important is trying to re- keep that focus while you're actually driving. Absolutely. How much does the HST do you any favours? So is it, a, is it a beast to drive or is it a, is it a driver's train? Um, I think to be fair, I'm, I'm, I tend to be, I'm a bit of a purist. Uh, I started off with my railway career. I cut my teeth on the old class 47 diesel electric locomotives, which were fantastic machines. You know, they were, they were, they were very large diesel locomotive. I mean, this is a very strange misconception for you. A lot of people turn around, they see a diesel loco and they go, Oh, look, there's the engine. Well, actually, no, it's not because the engine is inside the thing. Um, so actually it's a diesel locomotive, if you like. A lot of the old style traction were what we call diesel electrics. So for example, the, the brush class 47 was a diesel electric. Um, a lot of folk do know and understand about the class fifties. I drove class fifties for best part of eight years and I loved them. Absolutely fantastic diesel, uh, locomotive. To convert then from 47s to 50s, 50s to HSTs. And when I first started to drive the HSTs, they were powered by what we call the Paxman Valenta diesel engine itself. This was a marine engine. It was never designed for a train. But I'm certain you've you've heard that uh, on various YouTube videos. You've actually heard that iconic scream as they used to leave the platform. Fantastic things. You know, I mean, we, we as, as young drivers, we took them for granted. We really did. And then later on, sort of towards the late, late sort of 90s, you know, with, with the advent of environmentally friendly diesel uh, engines coming in, they extended the life of the HSTs by bringing in the MTU units. Um, yes, they were a lot quieter. They didn't have quite so much character, but they, they were a close second. I'll tell you what, let me give you a comparison, see if I can, I can put this into simple words for you. If you think about the, the HST and the Class 800, for example, both completely different types of train. Whether the 800 will be iconic, I don't know. The HST definitely is because of what it stood for and what it did. So if you think of the HST as a Spitfire, you know, it very solid, um, goes very well, sounds nice, very iconic. If you think of the Class 800 as a Eurofighter Typhoon, doesn't look particularly handsome as, as, a, as, a, as a train itself, but it's all singing, all dancing. So, you know, if you were to put the two side by side, the, you know, the Class 800, I, I gave them the nickname of Concord because I think if you put a set of wings on it and the nose drooped, 
I think it would almost fit. But, you know, the crazy thing is you get a class 800 on what we call AC power or the juice, as some people call it. The class 800s are phenomenal on acceleration when they, when they take up power. They are amazing. I mean, compared to the HSTs, OK, the HSTs are diesel. We know that. But, you know, they, they actually would make a diesel unit look very silly indeed because of their rate of acceleration. But having said that, I still would go with the HST. They are my favorites. They always will be. Um, as I say, with the 800s, they're the new kid on the block at the moment. Um, and I think, to be fair, whether or not they'll be iconic, I don't know. We've got a new breed of rail enthusiasts coming in. A lot of people are very old school with the HSTs. But I think maybe in about four or five years' time, when a lot of people um, see the demise of our iconic HSTs and the 800s start to become more prevalent in, in the railway industry, I don't know. Maybe they might have the same cult following. Who knows? We'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see on that one. You're listening to the We Are Rail Fans podcast. I'm Sam, and today's guest is Ian who's an HST driver for Great Western Railways. So is there a, a particular route or a particular service that you actively look forward to? You know, you see your roster to do something and you kind of go, yep. oh, great. Uh, and, and what is it that sets them aside? Um, this actually is quite an easy one for me. Um, I am part of what we call HSS, which is high, high speed services, where uh, eventually the grade will disappear and will be known as GWR drivers. But at the moment, we have what we call uh, Great Western HSS. So as regards to my route knowledge, um, like I said, we go towards South Wales. Uh, we work across to Cheltenham and up through Stroud, the Golden Valley to London Paddington. Uh, we also cover... Paddington down through to Westbury, Froome, via Bathampton. Furthest west we go at the moment is um, down to Western Supermare, but we also cover what we call the Cotswold work. Now, that's, that's my favourite. It's one of the very few routes where actually you can find virtually every type of British railway signalling. If we take from Bristol Parkway via Main D Junction, uh, and then all the way over to Hereford, Hereford to Worcester, Worcester to Oxford, and then we're back on the Great Western Main Line at Didcot. You could expect to see virtually every type of railway signalling. So you're looking at everything from what we call track circuit block to absolute block, right the way through to tokenless block. Now, the very nature of the line from Main D to Oxford to generalise, if you like, it's it's absolute block, which is semaphore signaling. We have multiple aspect signaling, which is your color lights. But also what's very challenging is the fact that um, you're, you're doing something the whole time. Right. So it's knowing all the different speeds as well. It's a very, very challenging route. It's one that I, uh, I used to adore with the HSTs because you really had to know what you were doing. The, the, the class 800s, I won't say I've made it easier. They've made it a little bit more functional because you, you don't have the slam door stock. You've got selective door opening. Um, the trains themselves, tech, with, with regards to technology, are very, very advanced. You know, providing you're, you're inputting the correct information, they'll do what you ask them to do. That's the important thing. It's actually making sure you enter in the correct information. Does that take some of the fun out of the job? I wouldn't say it takes the fun out of the job. 
Um, you know, I mean, even with a class 800 and the, you know, as we spoke earlier with a comparison between the two different types of braking system on uh, the HSTs and the class 800s, I mean, the class 800s has got a phenomenal braking system on it. To be honest, it can actually lead you into a little bit of a false sense of security because, you know, it's a case of I've got a really good brake here. Um, my own style of driving with the HSTs has actually been applied to the class 800. So I still break in the same place I break with a high speed train. Um, you know, if, if you think, I mean, when the, when the HSTs first came in, in the 1970s, there were two different dynamic engineering sides on British rail. The concept of the HST started back in the, in the, in the late sixties. You know, we had the we had the APTE, which was the experimental gas turbine version. We had the HST setup, and eventually we went to APTP production trains. The problem is because of lack of investment by the BRB many many years ago. Um, you know, the the APT never really got off the ground. I I thought the technology was fantastic on that thing, fantastic train. It looked awesome, um, but as a stopgap. You had the, the what we call the more traditional engineers that designed the concept of the high-speed train. Or, in fact, actually, it wasn't known as the HST then. It was actually known as the Intercity 125. And the HST acronym didn't come in until much later in, in the train's introduction. So they were actually known. You'd see them on the, on the timetable as IC125s, and that's what that meant, was Intercity 125s. So, you know, with regards to the braking systems on the train, when they first came out, they actually anticipated that she was suffering from what we call brake fade. So at 125 mile an hour, they were putting the brakes on. They were actually liquefying the brake pads. So what they did is they actually introduced briefly what we call a two-step brake. So you didn't have your full brake force available um, at 125 because that would save the wear and tear on the brake pads and stop them from getting brake fed and liquefying. But once, as soon as you reached 90, you then had your full brake force available. Right. You know, it was, it was no problem. There was no, there was no risk to safety as the way that the trains were designed. But as composite brake pads changed, we then went to what we call um, just the normal one-step braking. So in other words, we didn't have this two-step within the brake control system on the HSTs anymore. The brake pads were a lot better. They were of a harder composite design. But, you know, it's the same thing. If you drive two cars, literally the same mate, but because maybe the way that the person drives it can vary on the different way that you brake, you can, you can brake a car. If you've got more brake wear than, than some on another set, that can change things. It's all part of something that we as drivers, we do what we call a running brake test. It doesn't give you a complete feel for the brake. What it does, it tells you that the brake is operating. So at the end of the day, you know, when you come down to do your first station stop, you, you naturally are a little bit more cautious. You know, you're braking a little bit earlier just to see how the train's going to react, how it's going to feel. And believe it or not, a lot of people will sort of say, well, do you drive by numbers? So it's a case of do you have to do a certain distance at a certain speed to enable to stop at a certain place? I would say to a point, but that's not set in stone. I personally, I don't drive that way. I use my experience. I have a rough idea of a braking point, and as soon as I apply that brake, if it's not doing or if it's not doing as well as I should do, I can put a bit more in. I can take a little bit off. You know, I'm I am in full control of that brake. So, when you find yourself as a passenger, mm -hmm. 
do you yep. find yourself critiquing the driving of uh, of the train that you're on, or are you able to switch off? At what point do you cease being a driver when you're anywhere near the rail? Wow, if if you were to talk to my wife, honestly, she she would probably say I'm the worst backseat driver ever. Because, um, you know, you you do actually, I think we all do it as drivers. You know, we, we're, we're, we'll be sat there and you're thinking, oh, he's left that a bit late. Cool. I wouldn't, I, you know, it, it's one of those or well, that was a bit of a, that was a bit of a rough stop there. What was he thinking? You know, it, it's, it's that sort of thing. You know, I, I'll make a little bit of a statement here for you, Sam, if you like. Um, it takes a very brave man on the railway, especially as us as drivers, to actually say that we know it all. Because believe me, we don't. And even after my 37 years of, of being on the footplate, do you know something? Every day is different. And every day I learn something new. So it's all stuff that I've got in my armory. It's all stuff that I can, I can turn my experience to. As I said, we can't teach experience on the railway. Uh, so when I came in uh, back in 1984 and I progressed up through the ranks, as we call it, to get my driver's job, you know, for me, that that experience wasn't there. You know, it was a case of um, there were a couple of times where I was driving. You think, oh, I left that a bit late. I'm not doing that again. And then you, you, you find an average. You almost, if anything, it's like a driving style per driver, if you like. We talked briefly about route learning as regards to a driver. Sure. Route learning is an unthankful job. It's it's not a particularly pleasant job because you are you you asked to climb aboard a cab. It's not something that you are automatically given a right to. You know, you would sit there, you would um, you'd have a a notebook, you'd probably have a route map or something, and you would just sit there and you would just watch what the driver's doing. You know, yeah. you uh, some guys are really good. They'd sit and they talk to you. other guys. You know, w- would be lost in their own world, concentrating on what they were doing. So that that all depended on a, on a, on personalities and characters. On the odd occasion, you might be invited to drive. So you would uh, you would be allowed to take the controls, all perfectly safe. Um, and what you would actually end up doing, you would drive that route under instruction from the actual train driver. Now, that, again, depended on personalities. It depended on the way that you approached another driver. It depended on how you were within the cab. You know, I'll be honest, I've had one or two and I thought, nah, you can sit next to me, mate, but you're not driving this train. Purely because of the fact the the way that they conducted themselves, you know. And, and that's the thing. The one thing is about it, Sam, is when you're up the front of a train, the responsibility is yours and yours alone. So. Of Somebody else is is doing it, what we call doing it for you. If they make a mistake, it's it's your neck that's on the line. Literally, you know, it, it could ruin your career. So you put a lot of trust in, in, in the guys that are out route learning as well, you know. And you can, I won't say you can tell who makes a good driver and who doesn't. It's a case of what you do is you 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 have a look and you see how they are. And if you think, yeah, they've got a feel for this, um, and again, you know, if they don't if they don't adhere to your instructions with you telling them what they should be doing, it's like, sorry, mate, out the seat. You know, I'll I'll take her back over again, and we go on from there. But you know, things have changed so much from my day when I cut my teeth as a second man. This is before becoming a driver. You know, you you'd you'd have the senior drivers to say, well get in here mate you know have a little go sort of thing and it, you know that's how we that's how we did our apprenticeship 
So, you know, later on in years, it, it gave me a very, very good grounding. Unfortunately, the current state of training and everything doesn't actually allow for that anymore. There is a set type of training and everything on, on how they do this. They have designated drivers that are there to train new drivers on how to drive, how to route learn, how to learn traction and so forth. So it's all geared up now with regards to uh, the full corporate image on, on, on how the railways are run. Efficiency and safety, I would imagine, are the top of the priority. Indeed, yes. You you can't put a price on uh, on safety and efficiency. You know, as I said, paramount safety the whole time. There's never anything done on the railways as such with with regards to our type of the job, namely ops and drivers as such. We we can't we we can't cut corners. We're not allowed to cut corners. You know, it's that time where you know, for example, you're getting to London Paddington. You could be half an hour. You could be an hour late. Oh, that's it. I'll just jump straight back on my train and go home. Um, or I'll I'll drive I'll drive my next working straight back home. Get the train home on time. No, you you believe it or not, you actually have to adhere to your your mandatory break time. Because if anything was to go wrong, you know, um, the company would turn around and say, well, did you have your required break at Paddington? Of course. Um, well, n- well, no, not really. I was trying to help. No, 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 no. Because at the end of the day, if you're, not well, if you're not very well rested to do your next part of your diagram, you know, the, 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 the repercussions, you know, it's honestly with regards to what can go wrong and, and how it could impact on everyone. Safety is, is paramount. You know, we can't stress that enough in our job, to be honest with you. Okay, Ian, we move in to the quick fire section of questions because it's interesting to know your kind of your your breadth of interest. So okay. in your opinion, mm-hmm. what was the golden age of British Rail? Oh, wow. Um I would say for me personally, from about ninety probably mid nineteen eighties up till about the late nineties, I would say, for me personally. Okay. Uh how about a favourite train? It doesn't necessarily have to reside in the UK. A favourite train? Wow. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to be really biased here. Uh, it's got to be the Intercity 125. Um, and also it has to be a particular power car, which at the moment is residing in York uh, Railway Museum, which is 43002, which is Sir Kenneth Grange. So that's my particular favourite as, as regards to the Intercity 125. So as a retirement gift, you are given uh, a small branch line uh, and mm-hmm. you can have one train operating on it. It's uh, obviously it's big enough to handle whatever train you like. But uh-huh. is it a steam? Is it a diesel? Or is it modern? Do you know something? I have the utmost admiration for steam locos. I think they're fantastic. I do. The amount of hard work that goes into them is is astounding. Um, but I'm I I have and always will be a modern traction driver. I am uh, an enthusiast with regards to modern traction. Somebody turned around and said, "Right, you can have." Any locomotive, I, I think, although, yes, I would love the HST. I mean, they are fantastic, but I think I would probably air to, to possibly around the Class 50, I would say. Okay. I'll get shot for saying that one, but never mind. <laughs> but, no, there are no wrong answers. Oh, in that case, then only, I'm happy. Go for it. Only daft questions. <laughs> never a daft question, the, my that's friend. That's the only rule. Uh, is there one train that you wish you'd seen live in person? Wow. I think to be fair, I think with with my my interest in trains stemming back from from sort of early age, to be honest, I think I've covered pretty much what I've wanted to see anyway. I was predominantly into the 
third rail stuff on the on the southern region. So your your, your four sigs, your VEPs, and everything else. Very boring to look at, but just iconic for me. And that's that's what I would I would harp back to. You know, to me, that's there's not one that really sort of springs to mind. You know, somebody turn around and say, well, what about the Mallard and what about this and what about that Flying Scotsman? Yeah, they're all fantastic. They're iconic trains. But, you know, to me, I, I do harp back to this third rail electric, you know, these VEPs and SIGs and everything else. And everyone goes, oh, God, do you have to? It's like, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> so. This doesn't surprise me at all. The number of Pacer enthusiasts out there is significant. And the Pacer is a is an unloved train when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, to passengers. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favourite country uh, to travel by rail in if you're outside the UK? Do you know? I uh, to be honest, I would love if if the opportunity ever came by us. I mean. Um, my good lady, bless her, she's fantastic. Um, we've often thought about the Venice Simplon Orient Express. Um, you know, I'd love to get a seat on that thing. I mean, it would be tremendous to see the old style coach in stock the way that they are. The other one, I think, possibly a very close second, would be the Blue Train in South Africa. I've seen various programs on that. And that, to me, would be absolutely outstanding. I mean, the you know, again, it seems almost like heritage stock, but the way that thing is looked after and the way that you've got the staff on it catering for your every whim. So I think it would be the, the Orient Express itself or possibly the Blue Train in South Africa, I think, for me. Smashing. Okay, so to round us off, you uh, you run a, a Facebook group. I do indeed, yes. What's the what's the story? How did you get started and what's it all about? Right, I am the group owner of a, a rail enthusiast group called the Two Miles a Minute Group. Quite apt when you think about what I've been talking about. It's geared up primarily at the moment for the Class 800 and the HSTs. We've been going now for a number of years. We do all sorts of various things. We have photo competitions. We also have social get-togethers. This is pre-pandemic, obviously. But also what I do is I uh, I actually do almost like a, f- a photography log of each day that I do, almost like a photo diary. And what I do is I'll take a picture of where I am, all in a position of safety, and I'll put a description of actually what I'm doing per day, what train I'm working, and if it, you know if things happen, things go wrong. Um, it's a case of I'll explain, like, for example, if we've got a delay of three or four minutes, how that affects the rest of the journey, you know, whether or not there's been a various other problems, how that impacts. And to be honest, I've been very, very fortunate. We've got over a thousand members at the moment. They're a great bunch of guys. They really are fantastic. They've made the group. It's a wonderful, wonderful community. You know, if anybody wants to come and join us, come and join us. I mean, it's it's great also to see what you guys are doing with the, with the rail fans as well and and the various sites that you guys have got so you know it would be nice to think you know with the, with some of the groups that we've got out there that you know it's not quite such a taboo subject to be a rail enthusiast because years ago it got an awful lot of bad press oh i think that time has passed I, and yeah. i think that my, my personal opinion is that uh, we can thank uh, the likes of uh, of marvel and all those mm-hmm. superheroes mm-hmm. for making Okay, so you're interested in something that's a little bit different and a little bit fun. Mm. 
We all are. I, that's I think, right. I think that's where quite a lot of the acceptance has come from. Mm -hmm. uh, give your Facebook group another plug so that people can find it if they want to get stuck in. Yes, come and find us. Uh, our Facebook group is the Two Miles a Minute group. You will be warmly welcomed. Uh, a chance to interact with other guys who are interested in, as I say, the uh, the HSTs, the Class 800s, soon to be possibly the Class 387s because obviously they're becoming more prevalent. Come and find us. Come and join us. Um, unfortunately, you'll get to see more of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's a good thing. Wow. Don't I, talk I, yourself I, down. You're a very interesting man. I could listen to you talk about trains and your experiences thereon all day. Ian, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Not a problem, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I'd like to wish you, your team, and also all the rail fans all the best and everything. Continue to stay safe out there. Enjoy your hobby. And for us as train crew and everything else, where we can give you an insight, we'll do our best. And thank you very much for your support. We're, we're all very grateful on the railways. And thanks to you for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, please do let us know. You can get in touch via wearerailfans.com or use the We Are Railfans Facebook page. That's where you can send in your questions and comments. And who knows, we might be reading out your questions down the track. Please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts so you get a new episode as soon as it's been recorded. And whilst you're there, how about leaving us a rating and a review? Just like Miles did who said, love, love, love this podcast. Exactly what the rail fandom needs. Well, Miles, we'll have another episode for you very soon. This has been a Listen production. Thanks for travelling with us today, and if you wouldn't mind, please ensure you have all your belongings with you before you leave the show. <laughs>